On November 21, 2016, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation hosted a book talk with Ian Golden, Oxford University Professor of Globalization and Development and Senior Fellow at the Oxford Martin School, whose book is titled Age of Discovery, Navigating the Risks and Rewards of Our New Renaissance. This talk was moderated by Arne Westat, the S.T. Lee Professor of U.S.-Asia Relations at Harvard Kennedy School. For more information about the Ash Center, please visit ash.harvard.edu. Okay, so I think we should get started. Let me welcome all of you to this session this afternoon. My name is Arne Westat. I teach history and international affairs at the Kennedy School, and it's a really great pleasure for me today to introduce Professor Ian Golden, originally from South Africa, uh, I should mention this, um, has done a lot of different things in, in his career. He has worked for the EBRD, the European Development Bank, he's worked for the OECD, He spent quite a few years at the World Bank working with different kinds of aspects of its operations. What probably connects him most to what we are doing here is that he's also the founding director of the Oxford Martin School, which is one of the most fascinating institutions in terms of interdisciplinarity, interdisciplinary approaches to contemporary issues that I know of anywhere in the world. And that's an um, institution that would not have looked the way it does, probably wouldn't even be there without uh, Ian's effort. Uh, and he's just stepped down as, as director of that institution and now uh, on a year sabbatical, which of course brought him here to Cambridge, Massachusetts. Uh, the topic for the discussion today is a new book that uh, Ian has out co-written with um, Chris Kutana called The Age of Discovery, Navigating the Risks and Rewards of Our New Renaissance. Uh, I've read the book. I've been fascinated by it. So has a lot of other people who have, uh, who have read it, reviewed it, and commenting on it. Of course, for me as a historian by trade, it's particularly fascinating to see someone who takes a historical comparison and really takes it seriously uh, in order to understand more the world that we live in today. So this is applied history in the very best sense of the term. So Ian, we're looking forward to hearing your presentation and there will be time for questions and discussion afterwards. Ian, please. Thanks very much, Arnie. Thanks to you all for coming. It's a huge pleasure to be here. And um, I think this is the first time I'm talking at the Kennedy School since I taught here um, about uh, 25 years ago. So uh, it's very good to be back. And to share thoughts with you from uh, Age of Discovery, which arises both from um, my understanding of the big trends that are facing the world, drawing on the work of over 500 academics uh, across the University of Oxford, uh, in the Oxford Martin School, as well as uh, from a real concern that we are failing to effectively manage a time of the most magnificent potential that humanity has ever known, uh, but also one that brings very, very significant risks. So it's a very big book in terms of its objectives and its scope, and I do uh, feel delighted, Arnie, that you, as a historian uh, of great repute, uh, like it, because my greatest worry is that historians will say Ian's an economist, which I am, and doesn't know much about history, which is true, uh, and therefore we can't learn much from the book. So thank you uh, for that. For me, this is the iconic image of our time. It's clearly of walls coming down. The Berlin Wall 26 years ago, but a metaphor for this phenomena around the world in all dimensions, whether it's the opening up of China, the integration of Europe, the reduction of not only trade, but financial barriers around the world over an extraordinarily short time. I was living in Paris when this wall came down, working at the OECD, and I didn't imagine for a minute that it would change my life. I felt it was about... Eastern Europe, a wonderful thing, but something unconnected to my personal life. And yet, within four months, Nelson Mandela was released from prison, uh, 6,000 miles away from the wall. Uh, 64 countries became democratic within a space of five years, including, of course, South Africa. Nelson Mandela came to Paris. He asked me to be his economic advisor. And a few years later, I went back 
to do that and to run the state bank. So what I discovered in this experience is that things that seem unconnected in this period of hyperconnectivity and globalization now shape events around the world in dramatic new ways. But it's a roller coaster. It's not simply more and more integration, more and more connectivity, as we learned from this Arab Spring. It's about surprise. It's about uncertainty, as we've seen in the closing down of Egypt, uh, the events in Syria, and the other turmoils in the region. This is not simply about more and more integration. It's the uncertainty of this period and the pace of change, uh, which is the defining feature. And one of the reasons there's much greater uncertainty is because there are so many more connected acted, actors. Two billion more people in the world over the space of 26 years. And I believe the reason why we have the most rapid population rise ever in history is for the very same phenomena. The walls have come down. Ideas have traveled further and faster than ever in history, which are allowing people to live longer, healthier lives. Infant mortality collapsing, life expectancy increasing. Simple ideas, like washing your hands prevents contagious diseases, <coughs> smoking kills you, ideas like that. And very complex ideas, like those embedded in new cures for cancer, new vaccines, etc., spreading around the world. Two billion more people... And the other phenomena of this period of time is, of course, it's not only about physical density of connectivity, it's virtual too. The Internet World Wide Web developing in the same year as the Berlin Wall came down. Incidentally, Hubble spacecraft going up in the same year as well. So a period of unprecedented breakthroughs which mean we move from a world of only about half a billion people connected in the 1980s to a world today of over 6 billion connected people. So 5 billion more connected people in a period of extraordinarily short time. And with that, the ideas factory of the world changes gear and becomes very, very significantly different to the ideas factory of any previous period. If you believe in the random distribution of exceptional talent, there are simply many more exceptionally talented people out there who are connected. And whether it's going to be the new Einsteins, Mozarts, or Shakespeare's, people will emerge more rapidly, not necessarily from the streets um, of Cambridge, Massachusetts, or elsewhere that we know of, but from places like Mumbai, Shanghai, or Sao Paulo. But it's both the random distribution as well as the teams. The teams that are emerging because of this new capacity to engage in virtual ways. So whether it's the group that I started in the Oxford Martin School working on new cures for cancer, working on a 24-hour research cycle around the world with labs in uh, Shanghai, Mumbai, San Francisco and elsewhere, or whether it's people learning uh, to do things in different ways, there's a 24-hour research cycle in the cloud. And that's very, very different to anything that ever went before. Now, you'll be aware of a big debate about whether innovation is slowing down or speeding up. Books like Robert Gordon's and other pointing to a slowing down. Um, I believe this is misplaced. We're in the period of the most rapid innovation the world has ever known. Now, we might not be seeing it in productivity numbers, uh, and we can come back to that in discussion. Of course, formal education is also increasing at a dramatic rate. Um, Ani and I were reminiscing about the time when we uh, were first going to China, uh, Ani in 1979, and I first went in 1982. Um, at that time, there were something like a couple of hundred doctoral students in China. This year, there are over 200,000. This is a global phenomenon, uh, and it's one which is shaping formal learning as well in dramatic new ways. Over 80% of the world now living in a major city or less than an hour away from a major city with the access that they have to change the world, the inputs, the ideas, the markets, the capital, and, of course, 
even though they're not there, have this virtual connectivity. There are lots of ways to show this dramatic shift. Because I'm in finance, I look at financial flows, and here you see four simple flows, stable and flat till about 1990, much higher orders of magnitude, much more instability in the period since then. This is foreign direct investment. This is remittances, what migrant workers send back. This is portfolio flows, bond and equity flows, and this is official flows. Simple point of this graphic is to illustrate that the world has changed in a dramatic way over this period of time, both in the level of flow and in the instability of these flows. When we look at this period in the long sweep of history, we see this most remarkable story, 2,000 years. Income growth exponential, that's in red. Population growth green, arithmetic. Income growth more rapid than population growth, although both are increasing at an unprecedented pace. There was a period about 1,000 years ago when income growth exceeded population growth, and that period, like our period, was a period of integration, of migration, of ideas traveling, then Asia and Europe meeting. It didn't last. Note that the Renaissance, which I'll be talking about shortly, was a largely non-event in world history on these two dimensions. But this time is different. And when we're thinking about it, we need to understand quite how exceptional it is, because that changes everything in our understanding of the present and the future. The past, with all due respect to historians, in many respects, is not a guide to what's next. And the question is, how do we make sense of this time? Now, the reason that this is a time to celebrate, why this is the best time in human history to be alive, is because on virtually any dimension you think about, there's never been a better time. All of our chances of living longer, healthier lives are greater than any generation before it, with some notable exceptions, like the group that, for example, Angus Deaton talks about, white, middle-class, white, working-class, unemployed <coughs> Americans, and a few others, like Southern African people with HIV-AIDS or Russians, for other reasons. But for most people on the planet, life expectancy is higher than any generation that went before it. The average life expectancy is improved by about 20 years over 35 years. Just while we're together for about 90 minutes, your average life, sorry, 75 minutes, your average life expectancy will improve by about 20 minutes. That's the pace of progress. Reasons to be cheerful. Because I'll tell you many things that will scare you. When you go to sleep at night, remember the cheerful things. Illiteracy has gone down about 70%. From a world in the 1980s of 5 billion people, where 3 billion were illiterate, we're in a world today of 7.3 billion people with barely 1 billion illiterate people. A most extraordinary increase of 4 billion in the number of literate people in the world. And as I said, if you believe in people as the ideas factory, especially educated people, a lot more. And the number of desperately poor people has gone down by about 300 million, despite the world's population increasing by 2 billion. This has never happened in history. Historically, when there was rapid population rise, the number of desperately poor people increased, even if their relative share declined. So there's lots to celebrate and feel good about. This is a very different time, and I believe this is different because of globalization, a much maligned word. But by it, I mean integration, connectivity, the spreading of markets around the world, the spreading, most importantly, of ideas around the world in our lifetimes, for many of us, our adult lifetimes. Is there any period in history which... I have found that similar, and the answer is yes, the Renaissance. Now, Arnie uh, knows well there are many other periods to look to, and I encourage people to look at other periods. But this is the one that I found very, very interesting. It was a period of the most extraordinary change that took Europe from being a relatively backward area to the most advanced place on the planet within a very short period of time, less than 100 years. Everything changed. Perspective changed. Da Vinci, 
the art, and I've just spent the month of uh, October in Florence marveling at how rapid this change is, and you see it in the galleries. Of course, people's understanding of the world changed in dramatic ways, from a Europe with dragons on the edge to Mercator's projection mm -hmm. and around world. Only Australia left out within a very short period of time and their understanding of the universe changed from a sun that went around the earth to an earth around the sun. Copernicus followed by Galileo later and others. I believe that information technology was fundamental to that phenomena and it's very difficult to imagine the Renaissance without the Gutenberg press. Before that, a very small share of Europe was able to read and write handwritten manuscripts, mostly in Latin, and of course the church with a very strong authority on dissemination because those were the teachers. Very quickly after the production of the press, millions of books and million more political pamphlets were produced. Ideas traveled and there was massive translation. And this flowering that we celebrate 500 years later was associated with it. Unfortunately, not only good things traveled, terrible things traveled too. Diseases that were spread with the voyages of discovery killed most Native Americans. And a jihadist, Savonarola, took over from the Medicis in Florence in a quite extraordinary revolution where the most advanced city, Florence, was overthrown by someone spreading ideas about corruption, about how people were being left behind and preaching an ethical and different vision of the future to those that were offered by the Medicis. We know where it went, the bonfire of the vanities, the burning of books. Of course, broader Luther and others attacks on the church and its corruption. At that stage, you could buy your way to heaven with indulgences. And, of course, the pushback with the inquisitions, attacks, religious wars, and the hounding out of intellectuals and experts. If it sounds familiar, it feels terrifyingly familiar to me. A period of tumultuous change not managed effectively by the leaders, leading to extremism and societies falling apart. Of course, then it was not as broad-based globally as now. The two parallels, I believe, that we should think about are these. That firstly, while integration and more rapid change has been associated with tremendous benefits for some Many are being left behind. And when the world changes faster, people get left behind more quickly. And this is a fundamental part of a more rapidly changing world. The need to worry more about those left behind because the speed of progress is so great at the frontier. So while the walls have come down between societies, within societies the walls are going up everywhere. All major economies are experiencing rising inequality. And you see that this is associated with the period of integration and globalization. The returns to skill, the returns to flexibility, the returns to being at the right place at the right time are greater than ever before. At the same time, the disadvantages of not having those attributes are more perilous. And the second great challenge is that not only good things connect, really terrible things connect as well. So how do we have integrated financial systems without cascading financial crises? How do we have integrated cyber systems without vulnerability to cyber attacks? How do we have integrated travel systems without pandemic contagion? And how do we manage the unintended consequences of our successes. We all climb the energy curve and we have climate change. We all enjoy anti taking antibiotics. We have antibiotic resistance. We all love our sushi. 
we eliminate the tuna. Those challenges of the adding up of the goods becoming the bads of globalization. I'm going to come back to that. I want to race through three mega trends, demographic, economic, and technological, which provide the background to the story, and then come back to some of these global governance and adding up issues. I mentioned that life expectancy is rising rapidly. Here you see it. A convergence and increase across all regions of the world. Even more dramatic is the collapse in fertility across the world. With all regions of the world except Africa, the green line, already approaching replacement level and below replacement level. Over half the countries in the world today, below replacement fertility levels and Africa getting there over about the next 20 years. So all regions of the world except Africa stabilizing their populations, and with that the world population stabilizing at around 10 billion. With this, median age is doubling everywhere, except Africa, and the population structure of societies moving very, very rapidly. So we need to remove from our mental maps ideas of population pyramids and put in place this sort of structure. Now this has very, very significant implications for everything that one thinks about. I hope you look at it and see a vase that you stick flowers into, but I look at it and see a coffin standing up. One obvious fact of this, of course, is that women are living young longer than men everywhere in all countries of the world and the reason is they don't make as many stupid decisions they don't smoke as much they don't drink as much they don't stick as many knives into each other and they live longer everywhere but the opposite is happening at the bottom more young boys than girls in all societies of the world because when the income status and career prospects of boys are greater than girls people are deciding to have boys now, this weight of the elderly on the young is going to have dramatic consequences. Um, when the structure was built of retirement and pensions, average life expectancy on retirement was seven years, and average real risk-adjusted returns were 4%. That's in the 1960s. Today, average life expectancy on retirement is 27 years, and real risk-adjusted returns are maybe half a percent. That means you have to save a hundred times more than you would have had to save for an equivalent standard of living in your old age. Where's the money going to come from? Consumption. What's it going to do to demand then? Where's it going to go to? What asset classes? Is it going to go into property? Is it going to go into stocks? That makes a very big difference. And, of course, how does the regulatory environment impact on that? In Europe, Basel III and Solvency II, which are two regulatory structures, prohibit pension funds from investing in uh, risky assets, what they call risky assets. So they're forcing people into fixed income, which is forcing yield curves down even further. The problem is partially the same here, but not totally. This will make a very big difference to in generational equity. People will hold on to their income. People will inherit their parents' houses when they're 70. And the elderly will no longer want to pay for the education and other assets of the youth because they'll have to hold the assets themselves. So this matters. Every country is different. China, because of its one-child policy, more vertical. The U.S., more like a beehive structure, which is where you want to be. Now, I did this graphic before Trump's victory, and uh, it's very worrying because one of the many things he said, of course, is that he's going to curtail immigration dramatically. That will make the U.S. one of the exceptionally positive aspects of the U.S. become much less positive, and you'll get that. Over half the children born in the U.S. today are being born uh, to first or second generation immigrant parents, even though they are only 11% of the population. So this matters as well. The workforces of the world in this structure changed dramatically in size. China has 1.6 million less workers this year than last year. Uh, I'm predicting that real wages will double in China over the next five years. And 
of course, Africa becomes the biggest workforce, but it's 55 countries. It's not one, and so it can't really be thought about in that way. Migration becomes more and more significant as the OECD workforce goes down from 830 million to uh, about 620 million over this period of time. What about the economic prospects? My view is that the future is likely to look like the last 10, 15 years, with emerging markets growing at three to five times the rate of the old OECD economies. And there are three reasons for this. The first is they learned the terrible lessons of the 70s, 80s, and 90s crises. So on average, their macro is in much better shape. The second is because their macro is in better shape and they're not in austerity or very low growth situations, their rates of investment in the key drivers of competitiveness are higher and going up, whereas in the advanced economies, they're lower and going down. And that means education, health, infrastructure, and research and development. And thirdly, because I believe the future will be governed by systemic risk, having the resilience, the political will, and the economic firepower to deal with risk becomes more and more significant. When you're growing at 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8%, you can give without taking. But when you're growing at 0 or 1 or 2%, all reallocation requires taking, and that in a gridlock political creates gridlock politics. Of course, if you're in massive debt as well, you've fired all your fiscal ammunition, and so you don't have the means to deal with problems. So I think China will continue to grow at 6%. Size matters as well as um, growth rates. China growing at 6% on a $17 trillion economy is adding more value every day than when it was growing at 10% on a $8 trillion economy 10 years ago. Although you wouldn't believe that if you read the financial press, you'd think that China's in some sort of crisis. It's never added more value than it'll be adding today. And the same, of course, is true of India at 8% uh, and many, many other economies. In this scenario, emerging markets, that's the dark, become a bigger and bigger share of the world economy, growing to about 80% of global economic growth by 2040. Now, this has two very beneficial impacts. First, it lifts average global growth rates because a bigger, more rapidly growing part of the economy is becoming more significant. So the slow growth in the advanced economies matters less and less to the world economy. And secondly, it stabilizes the world economy growth rate. It makes it more predictable because when the U.S. gets a cold, the rest of the world no longer gets fever, although we do worry when China gets a cold. So there are more growth engines, and that makes the world growth more stable. Um, we'll come back in a minute to some of the other, other dimensions. It also means that there's a lot of convergence, that many economies of the world reach the income levels of many of the advanced economies uh, within the next 20, 30 years. Of course, per capita income depends on population growth as well as economic growth, which is why China goes above $30,000 and India doesn't go above 10 and China and Africa above 5. This is the different contributions to global growth of different countries in the world. And you see the dark shades, that's the emerging markets, becoming more already more significant than the advanced economies and will become more and more over time. With this, you have the explosion of the new middle class. 4.9 billion middle class consumers, 66% in Asia within 14 years by 2030. So it's this Asia story largely, but not predominantly, I mean not only. And the U.S. less and less significant. That's the dark blue here. You see the different shades of Asia. This is China being overtaken by India. That's Japan. Dark blue is the U.S. Light blue is Europe. And you see that Europe double the size of the U.S. in terms of market shares within the next 34 years. So the U.S. less and less significant. Whatever Trump does is not going to change this basic story. It's the fundamentals of the rest of the world growing relative to the U.S.'s growth. Um, over time. 
The key question, of course, is can it happen? Is there enough stuff, resources, water, atmosphere, etc., for all of that? And I'll come back to that. I want to whiz through three, uh, some technological trends. <laughs> Always reminding ourselves with all of this that the future is unknown and we are as likely to, well, more likely to be wrong uh, than right and we're in very good company. But of course, all of our lives and everything we think about is likely to to play out in the future, and so we need to think more, not less about it. It's easy to know what's not current. One of these devices replaces everything on the previous screen, yet it's impossible to imagine what the next device is with any accuracy. But some things are pretty predictable, and one of them is the story of Moore's Law, the doubling of processing speed about every 18 months now for the same price. And the 40 or so people working in the Oxford Martin School on the future of computing in different aspects, including quantum, believe this will continue for at least the next 20 years. So we'll have 100 to a million times the power for 100,000 to a million times the power for the same price in 20 years' time. Difficult to know what we'll do with it. One is the obvious continued growth of the digital world. Another is the development of nano capabilities. This is from the nano lab I developed. This is eight billionths of a meter wide needle going through an individual cancer stem cell at a speed of 44 billionths of a second. So the developed manufacturing at the nano level is certainly um, on our doorstep. This is the stem cell lab I created. It's lab technician skin turned into a heart cell. So massive revolutions in medicine. And this is the sort of revolution that's happening uh, in genetics. We mainly in Oxford working on the chemical aspects of it. The back mouse, a wild mouse, drops out after about 20 minutes, 200 yards. Um, the front mouse, a genetically modified mouse, goes for one and a half miles, two hours. Same mice, 10 times the power with some slight genetic improvement. And what's happening in the physical area is even more dramatically being expressed in chemicals, the ability to increase cognition uh, and do other things with chemicals. So we're entering a world of really fundamental medical revolutions, including, of course, the ability to rewrite DNA. And that creates many, many, many questions, not least the ethical ones around embryonic uh, DNA interventions. Uh, Are we entering a world of superhumans? Or will these technologies be used to overcome many of the inequalities that people find themselves with at birth? And what are the implications of that? Now, as these technologies become exponentially cheaper, uh, and already you can do for about $100 what in 20 minutes, what Craig Venter did for $3 billion in 10 years in the 1980s, this will revolutionize healthcare. So all of us will have individualized DNA sequencing within the next 10 years, and that will be extraordinarily beneficial. We'll have individualized medicine. At the same time, some crazy people with pretty primitive biochemistry capability uh, could develop a biopathogen and put it on a drone and fly it up and down our streets or our stadium or wherever they wanted to take it and create a pandemic that would kill us all. So what's also happening with these technologies is not only the potential for quite unprecedented breakthroughs in health and in other dimensions, but also unprecedented new breakthroughs in the power of individuals or small groups to do harm. Now, what we saw in the financial crisis was, of course, one manifestation of the super-spreading of contagion, but that was through an institutional collapse. Um, what is now quite remarkable is how individuals can lead to collapse. Bering's Bank, which had existed for 200 years, uh, can you imagine the political and technological changes that the management of Bering's had seen over the lifetime of that institution? And one day they woke up to discover that one kid, Nick Leeson, had destroyed the bank. What happened? He had a new technology with a bit of leverage that none of his managers understood. And this divide between the availability of technologies that we don't understand how to manage and their power is growing insignificant. We're entering this world of pirates where small groups can create mayhem. 
The problem with understanding risk in the 21st century is that the past is an extremely poor guide to the future. The system is more complex, it has more actors, it's evolving at revolutionary speed, and our institutions and capabilities are evolutionary. Now we can draw risk curves for anything. The problem is the long tail of very um, uncertain and maybe low probability and very large impact. This is not the Nicholas Taleb black swan exogenous event along tail. This is things we are creating we don't understand. There's nothing exogenous in a financial crisis. There's nothing exogenous in a pandemic or climate change or cyber attack or terrorist event. We just don't understand them. We just aren't able to manage them effectively, but they're not coming from an asteroid or some non-human process. The idea of systemic risk is, of course, uh, not new. We think in Britain that a rat coming off a ship might have led to the death of half the British population in 1348. What's new is the pace and scale of this, what I call in my previous book the butterfly defect, the super-spreading of the bads through integrated systems. What we need to appreciate is that we are entangled. This is not the same as being connected. Connected implies a voluntary behavior. It implies we can disconnect if we want to. That option has gone. We are in an entangled world. And that creates a joint responsibility and very different politics than a world of connectivity where the options exist of how you pull out uh, as a country or not. Some areas one might be able to do it, like in trade, but other areas like climate or pandemics, one cannot. So the swine flu that starts in Mexico City is in 160 countries in 30 days. That's new. And the Emerging Infections Group in the Oxford Mind School modeled this and shown it exactly replicates airline traffic. With the super spreaders of the goods of globalization, like major airport hubs, becoming the super spreaders of the bats. In cyber, of course, we see this instantaneously with the super spreading of viruses around the world through the new nervous system um, of hyper-cyber connectivity. And as we move to the Internet of Things and devices in our bodies and, and of course, the controlling of our bank accounts, uh, our front door locks, our vehicle-to-vehicle -vehicle communication and increasingly <coughs> implants through these, trust and integrity will become more and more significant. And so how we feel about these things and how our regulatory and other environments manage them <coughs> becomes more and more significant. It's also the case, not for any of you, but for other people, that m machine intelligence will take jobs in very large numbers. Uh, the, emerge, the technology and work group in the Oxford Martin School has modeled uh, this for the U.S., and we suggest that 47% of U.S. jobs are vulnerable to machine intelligence over the next 20 years. Uh, and higher shares in many emerging markets, the, the European numbers, about 38% of jobs being vulnerable. We've mapped 708 professions and shown uh, why this can happen. But will it happen? What we need to always recall is the experience of Germany, uh, which has banned GMOs and nuclear power. It's how technologies respond to change that we need to understand, not only what's happening in the labs and the capabilities at the frontiers of change. And it's that which is the great lesson of the Renaissance, I believe. This sense that they had of a world of connectivity and our sense now of a world of disruption. Whether we're able to get this to work depends increasingly on our understanding of this time and gaining the necessary perspectives of how things are connected. Now, economists have worked for many hundreds of years on connectivity and spillover effects, what we call externalities, the tragedy of the commons, um, showing how individual and collective behavior 
are very different and how we need to manage collective behavior in different ways to what we would imagine. This is the um, Tokyo market called Tuna. And you might be aware that this tuna was sold for um, about one and a half million dollars. That's the market's response to the scarcity of a natural resource. Of course, the tuna don't know how much they're worth. Uh, they don't reproduce more when they're worth more. Uh, and so more and more high-tech fishermen chase the remaining tuna, and you have extinction, which is the fate of all inelastic natural resources. Um, in different forms. More and more market demand, fixed supply, exhaustion. The, cha the, the, the challenge is that governments are not much better at this. This is the Aral Sea, shared by six countries doing the right thing to draw water to feed their people, short-termism leading to collapse of this shared resource. With climate change, we have the biggest collective challenge that humanity has uh, ever known. Uh, extremely complex in multiple dimensions. The science is very basic um, and 19th century uh, around greenhouse gases, but the precise incidents and tipping points uh, are much more complex to understand and still cannot be adequately modeled. We have done modeling which suggests that as of this year, the total carbon uh, investment in the world is already baked in to lead us to two degrees. So that if we want to stop at two degrees, basically there can be no new power stations uh, using fossil fuels, uh, certainly not with a depreciation life as their investors might expect. Certainly the reserves that are in many parts of the world, least less least of all the, I mean, most of all the Arctic and others, will never be taken out. So we've run out of budget already in terms of two degrees, um, and any from next year will take us over two degrees, unless, of course, people put up a power station and then take it down uh, before the end of its life, which is what's likely to happen. The challenge is more complex because the rest of the world still has to climb the energy curve, and we've made the problem uh, over 150 years through the stock of fossil fuel emissions. Now the challenge is that emerging markets account for already over 60% of the flow. So extremely difficult, and part of the solution is clearly going to be new innovation and investment. The good news is that photovoltaics are coming down exponentially in price, uh, much more rapidly than any energy form ever in history. But uh, there are massive issues with renewables regarding storage. Battery prices are also coming down, uh, but not as quickly. And, of course, this is going to have to be informed by a regulatory environment, and the question is who's going to do it. The 21st century governance system, uh, which we have, is totally unfit for purpose. Built uh, after the Second World War and in the, in the 60s, some of it, for different objectives. Partially successful, but largely now unfit. Small changes, largely rearranging the furniture, not scaled to the challenge that we face. So we'd like individual countries in cabins on an ocean liner with no captain on the deck of planet Earth. Like many of the great tumultuous changes, this is for good reason. The world can no longer be governed by 12 white men smoking cigars in a room. That's good news. Um, it's also good news that new powers have risen uh, and that there's going to be a more global power distribution in the world in the medium term. The danger is that we're in a power handover, transition period, with no leadership. The, the old powers don't want to run the world anymore. Uh, both presidential candidates in the U.S. compete on how little they would say about international affairs, and Trump's gone even further. Uh, but the new powers haven't yet provided a single solution to any global problem. And so this is a very dangerous time a period where we must assume that it's going to be businesses and civil society and others who are going to be providing leadership rather than global governance. 
So we know what's happening increasingly. We have the foresight now through our science and through our connectivity that no previous generation has ever had to understand the consequences of our actions. And yet the paradox is, despite being in a hyper-integrated world with greater foresight, we are less able than ever, most probably, to manage this collective endeavor. And this has become particularly manifest through the failure of finance. Finance is by far the most sophisticated of the global systems. If you compare the Treasury uh, in Washington and the Fed in Washington to, say, the Department of Agriculture or anything else, you'll get the picture. Finance is by far the most sophisticated. Our best students don't go to the Department of Agriculture. They go to the Fed uh, or to the Treasury. And the same is true at the international level with the IMF being by far the more sophisticated institution compared to any UN agency or anything else. And yet, none of these 200,000 good PhDs from places like Harvard and Oxford saw the financial crisis coming, and now they're still very unable to pick up the pieces. What are the failures that we can learn from this? The first, I believe is this challenge to understand complexity and in integrated networks, the fragility that comes from it, and the new forms of risks that come from nodes and networks in systems. It was Lehman Brothers, it'll be other nodes next that become the centers of webs. Very, very simple arithmetic can lead you to these conclusions, but we need to get much wiser at identifying structures and using policies like competition policy to move things to other places. The second is that the system is largely managed at the national level, but it's a hyper-integrated system, and therefore it needs different levels of management. The third is that we don't understand the revolutionary technologies. We have elderly men like me on audit committees and running institutions, and we have bright young kids legally doing arbitrage around them with new technologies in all sorts of ways. The fourth is that the accounting and standard systems are driving us towards short-termism, mark-to-market accounting, quarterly reporting, just-in-time, the bonuses, and all of this is a short-term incentive system, as is the politics in Washington. You kick the problem down the road uh, and leave others to grapple with it. And this is reflected in many, many ways. This is just the citation of lean management in literature. The ubiquitous MBAs uh, around the world are also a part of this. And the, the fifth problem is not too little data, but too much data. The overload, the deluge, being blinded by the blizzard, and in this, jettisoning judgment, wisdom, and experience for data management. And what we see in the financial crisis is of all the excuses, this became the most powerful. Everyone knew there was going to be a financial crisis. They just weren't prepared to take away the party while the punch bowl was being passed around. So how do we manage a hyper-integrated world, and what can we learn, and what do I learn in the age of discovery about this? We learn that these periods of most magnificent improvement and tumultuous change are also extremely fragile. We take them for granted at our peril. They can be unwound, they have been unwound, and unless we manage them in a more interventionist way, we will find that this period of the most successful period in humanity's history could be unwound in dramatic ways. And there are two broad categories of things we need to worry about. The first is the superspreading of bads as well as goods, in other words, the managing of a joined-up system. And the second is worrying about those being left behind in this process, the growing inequalities that come in periods of more rapid change. The spices were brought back from the New World. People walked the silks of that walked the streets of Florence in silk and brought the gold back to put on the domes of their cathedrals. But most people continued to eat gruel and the scribes were put out of work. And the church told the rich that they could go to heaven if they paid indulgences. People got angry and Savonarola succeeded. That is the danger that we face. Around the world, people have some romantic idea that the pre-globalized world was a better one. That if we become protectionist, nationalist, and xenophobic, if we cut, cut ourselves off, 
we somehow can better safeguard our future, look after those left behind, and manage the risks that we see confronting us. We see it reflected in Brexit. We see it reflected in the pushback on trade. And, of course, we see it reflected in Trump. This is profoundly misguided. It, can, it will lead to a much more insecure world because we won't be able to manage either the systemic risks or the growth and inequalities in our societies more effectively. We need to work out in more effective ways how we operate integrated systems with resilience, and there are many lessons of that in the age of discoveries if we want to rock on. And in that, I believe drawing on wisdom, drawing on perspective rather than on data becomes more and more important. So age of discovery is a rapid tour through the past and the future, uh, and I hope that you find it enjoyable. And if you want to get a copy, I'm doing a book signing at 3 o'clock at the Harvard Coop today. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Jim. That was truly, truly fascinating. Um, we have a few minutes for discussion. I wanted to open with uh, a question of my own. Is it okay for you if we take them by twos or threes? Sure, whatever. Yeah. So have your questions prepared. So my first one goes to, right to the end of what you were saying. And I'm fascinated, as you might imagine, by the historical comparisons. And it's not just to the Renaissance, which you use very effectively in the book. There are other periods as well, as you indicated. One is with Song China, for instance, which went through a process that there are many similarities, I think, to Europe in the Renaissance, but also some of the same challenges. And the big challenge seems to me to be exactly what you got to towards the end of your talking, which is that many of these situations of rapid change call for what you called interventionist policies. And by interventionist, I assume that you mean interventionist by some form of collective, be it a state or multilateral organizations or international organizations in a broad sense. Now, that's exactly what didn't happen in terms of the Renaissance. It's exactly what didn't happen in Song China. And I wonder if one of the reasons why it didn't happen, or the main reason why it didn't happen, was that many of the fundamentals that created this new world of discovery of innovation pushed in the direction of the individual over the collective, right? So there is something baked into this process of transformation in itself that pushes us in the opposite direction of what seems to be needed in order to guide these processes. I mean, that's more of a philosophical question than an historical question, but it's one that I wonder if you could reflect on a bit mm -hmm. further. Because what we very often hear these days, particularly in the debate of glo on, on globalization, is that there has to be more space for interventionist policies. But the big question is whether that is possible and under which circumstances it is possible. For instance, on issues such as climate change. Other questions? Yes, please. I wonder if the lady at my left uh, is going to be able to read your book on on our Kindle. Mm. Ah. Yeah. Will there be a Kindle version? There is one already, yeah. Already? Yep. Ah. Yeah. You can just go to Amazon and, um, and get it, yeah. You can't get it signed that way. <laughs> Others? <laughs> Shall I respond to you? Okay, well? you yeah. respond to me, and then yeah. we'll see if yeah. you other, other yeah. questions. Yeah. Um, I think you raise a, a really fascinating and, and quite fundamental point, Arnie. So that's... Um, I, I, I think we need to jettison ideas that governments are the only interventionist at the national level and that collective government as expressed say through the UN is the only interventionist at the global level and, and, and I, I would agree that there needs to be more intervention uh, but what does there need to be intervention in? There needs to be intervention depending on what the problem is um, in the case of uh, pandemics, it's going to be pharmaceutical companies mm. working with governments. In the case of cyber, it's going to be largely the private sector working with governments. In the case of finance, it's really a private sector uh, management with some regulation. And some things, like if you're talking about tax avoidance, it's going to be like a whole series of very small countries. But you really don't have to involve the whole world in it. Um, 
climate change, you know, 90% of emissions are created by 20 uh, countries uh, within the U.S. Let's say the federal government doesn't agree to do things, but some big states like New York, uh, Illinois, uh, California, big cities, and big companies agree, you could actually knock out um, 80% of emissions in the U.S. without the federal government uh, doing very much. So um, I think... Creative coalitions, uh, I don't want to use coalitions of the willing because the term is being too damaged, uh, but um, creative coalitions which will be cities, will be businesses, will be governments, some things you must probably do need total global governance for. I think pandemics and aspects of pandemics would be one, but that's not to say that Sierra Leone has to be the world leader on stopping pandemics. It just has to allow a global capability into its territory. Um, and um, but there are very few things that actually need global governance truly global. Uh, most things can be solved, at least 80% of the problems can be solved by 20% of the actors. And it's finding those coalitions. But the broader issue you raise, I think, is about individual and collective. It's this commons issue. And I think you're absolutely right. The, whole, the, the reason the system is vibrant is because we've unleashed human individual potential around the world uh, with the market. Uh, previous systems of collective endeavor like central planning obviously would never have done this. Now we need to find ways of saying that this market is limited, constrained, that you can't all enjoy your sushi or, or your fossil fuels or, whatever, or your antibiotics, that, that that will lead to collective failure. And I think you're absolutely right. It requires a second phase of this unleashing of human connectivity, which is about interdependency and uh, joint responsibility. You know, interestingly enough, the classical economists like Mill and Hume and um, Smith, they wrote all about this. Uh, It was all about the philosophical underpinnings of uh, the markets. That's been jettisoned. And we need to come back, I think, to understand what these philosophical bases are, the strengths and the limits, uh, and how we, uh, how we nurture that more effectively. Mm, thank you. And on that, obviously, there is also the aspect of the political sector in itself and the links between politics and choices that people actually make there and the broader global trends yeah. that we yeah. were talking about. And many businesses are very responsible yeah. and how one makes that more transparent and nurtures that mm. uh, and creates the incentive effects I think is extremely important. Okay. Other, other questions? Please. Um, my name is Ala. I'm a second year MPP from Yemen. And my question is related to uh, basically conflict, development, and going forward how the the the, the global governance is going to be uh, engaged in managing um, uh, these kind of conditions because societies uh, are, as you mentioned, are very connected and whatever the conditions of those societies that are not able, for whatever reason, to grow as fast as the rest, uh, either because of conflict or because of lack of capabilities, productive capabilities or others, um, can have a negative impact on the rest of us. Does that mean that we will see in the future more intervention from the global on how development is done by those that are lagging behind? Or should we encourage something like that but then what, how is that going to be, especially as we see China and U.S., so different philosophies in terms of politics and economics happen? Mm. Lucy, very, a very wide-ranging talk, yet very wide-ranging <laughs> question. So I think you may want to respond to that one now, and then we'll, we'll do another round. Right. Um, the question of, of um, conflict and, and post-conflict and global responsibilities, not only in the region, but also, of course, the refugees from the region, um, is 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 an absolutely key question. Um, I think we we have a global responsibility, depending on our ethical basis, to stop massacres 
uh, and death wherever they occur in the world. Whether we exercise that responsibility or not, of course, is a completely different matter, and how we do it. Uh, and the same applies to, to the harboring of refugees. Um, just incidentally, I was amazed over the weekend to read in the Boston Globe about the ship, the St. Louis, which I never knew about in 1939, and how it was turned back. So even societies which seem advanced have done some things which have been totally irresponsible uh, in their past. Now, whether we are in a high spot or, or, or not in this is an interesting question. I worry that we are entering a new Cold War in the world. And that um, what we saw with a whole series of resolutions on the right to protect, interventions by the Security Council, etc., uh, indicates is no longer going to happen. And that conflict, as we're seeing in Syria, uh, increasingly will be uh, devolved to regional superpowers. And that is a very, very worrying, very worrying uh, development. And I think it's, it's something we saw in the Renaissance as well, um, this rise in, in conflict in dramatic uh, ways. Um, including all forms of, of religious intolerance, etc., uh, in Spain and in, across Europe and elsewhere, uh, coming afterwards. So I, I think um, it's another reason why, unless we can manage our politics at home, we are unlikely to be able to manage them at the global level. And clearly the, you know, the triumph of Trump in the U.S. is very worrying in this regard. I don't think that for Yemen or Syria uh, or anywhere else uh, that this is good news. Other questions? Just to the point of fixing politics at home a little bit, um, you talked about inequality as the other major challenge. I don't think you've had a question on that quite yet. So th there's another lesson from history where um, in the late 1800s there was a response to inequality from the UK with the welfare state and from the US with expanding secondary education. The things that have been bandied about recently about how you fix inequality seem like extensions of those, you know, universal basic income, you know, more training for people to get into the automation space. What sticks out to you as the best thing to reduce inequality? Um, and I know it depends by economy, but I'm interested yeah. to hear what the best ideas yeah. are. Um, a couple of thoughts. The one is that really what, what makes inequality um, more rigid or more difficult to overcome is lack of flexibility. Okay, so what does that mean? It means you can't go to where the jobs are. Uh, because you can't afford the housing in New York or San Francisco or whatever. There are jobs there. Unemployment is very, very low. Like unemployment is extremely low in London. It's under 4%. But in certain other parts of the country, it's 20%. Uh, you can't go to where the jobs are because of housing markets. You can't commute because the infrastructure's uh, not being invested in, so commuting times are longer. You can't go because your partner uh, can 't move or because you don 't have childcare. Details like that matter, and one of the statistics in the u s that's that 's disturbing is that the housing mobility of the youth is something like half what it was for their parents. That matters to flexibility of markets and to overcoming inequality so I don't believe you can create jobs in the Midwest, as for example, or in the north of England, or in you know desperately poor country. I think that is the the, the leverage you get from any investment is much lower. You have to go with economic geography and why certain places are dynamic, and help people become part of that, and then also create the safety net for those that are left behind. Uh, so, yes, I do believe in basic income, uh, etc., social welfare, etc. But that's really 
you, you don't want people to be on those things. You want to allow them the ability. That also involves things in uh, education, uh, retraining, uh, apprenticeship. All of those things are very important. Now, the same thing also applies at the global level. Now, one of the reasons we see uh, people trapped in poverty is because they can't migrate. That's the main reason. A hundred years ago, there were no passports. They were just coming into being at the First World War. Um, it's very difficult under, uh, to, to think of people in certain really poor countries ever escaping poverty without moving. Of course, I, uh, and I've done a book on this exceptional people, I believe that it's good for the receiving country as well. So if the U.S. wants to be more dynamic, it needs to accept immigrants. Uh, the trade-off between unemployment and immigration has never been shown to be true. Um, so that's another part of it, is can people move country? Can, can dynamic people from other countries come here and create jobs? Over half the jobs in Silicon Valley are created by immigrants. Um, so uh, those are very important uh, characteristics as well. But I think we need to go beyond basic income and all, we need to really be able to, it's, it's a much broader and deeper uh, set of initiatives which are required. Mm. But the immigration issue is, is interesting because if you think about this in terms of historical parallels, and I'm entirely with you in what you're saying, that no, no historical parallels should be thought of as being in any way, any way absolute uh, or even uh, predicative in any meaningful sense. Yeah. But they do sometimes, as you, you do in this wonderful book, uh, help us to ask good questions, and better questions that we can in other circumstances. One of, one of the things that you haven't seen in backlashes earlier on against periods of rapid transformation, innovation and change or uh, anti-migration attitudes of the form that you find today. Now you explained some of the reasons of course that we disorder here why that might what, why that's the case politically. But I do think that's one of the issues with regard to consequences that we need to look at. The other one of course is the uh, which is probably the biggest of all is the question of of war and peace because yeah, yeah, it is yeah, it absolutely. is quite clear that overwhelms that everything it overwhelms everything yeah. it, it it pushes yeah. almost everything that we we can see in directions that would have a profound impact on everything else that we try to do all of the concept aspects yeah. now um, we'll have to let Ian go because he's 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 off to sign his book among other things over at only at three o'clock huh? so you'd have a chance to you'd have a chance to see him over there uh, it was really really wonderful to listen to you today it's a, it's a fascinating book if if you want it signed you can pick it up there but even if you don't get it signed by Ian read it because I think uh, everyone who is here would get something significant out of it so thank, thank you for coming and talking and thank you very much for having me it was and a kind word.